Welcome back to ISC's Art Break. I'm your host, Carolina Sique. Last episode, we learned about how anti-blackness permeates theatrical institutions and begins in traditional westernized theater training. Today, in part two of this conversation, with the aid of Dr. J. Austin Williams, Chris Anthony, and Dominic Taylor, we are pondering questions about how the black experience is neglected in arts education and what theater educators can do to reflect on their subconscious behavior towards blackness. My first question for part two of this conversation is, what aspects of theater arts education omit the black experience? Uh, I, I don't think there's a monolithic black experience. I think there are many, many black experiences. But I think that the traditional training programs are very grounded in white supremacy, right? Which, is, which comes with a, a set of values, which comes with a set of um, cultural standards. So for instance, um, when is it okay to be loud? When you're told to be loud, that's when you're, it's okay to be loud, when you're told to be loud. Um, it's okay to have an outburst in the middle of a scene if it means that you're free. Uh, but, you know, if, you, if that's your cultural communication style, then you're problematic, right? You're overly dramatic or you, which is really ironic to hear in a drama program. But yes, you get labeled dramatic or you get labeled an activist, um, which I found out at the end of my education, one of my teachers said, you know, I've always thought of you as an activist. <laughs> I was like, oh, is that why I've never worked with a faculty director? Maybe. Um, but uh, the, I think that this is what I mean about examining everything top to bottom and just starting over in some ways is that there are many, many different forms of cultural expression that are not included, right? Like, like um, how you talk to somebody. Are you a bad person? Are you a bad actor? You're unprofessional. Um, I think a lot of white supremacy is couched in the word professional. Business, right? Um, there are places in the world, friends, that do theater that starts somewhere within an hour of the scheduled start time. Because that's just how it works, right? Because you got to go and see your people and talk to them. <laughs> you have to have a drink and you have to sit down, right? Like, it's okay. The show will happen. Why are we so pressed, right? What? Time is not always money, right? Sometimes people are money, right? Sometimes the, the experience is what's important. And there are people who value that. Um, I think that when we look at training programs and we look at, um, what's another example? I think looking at something like um, the body, you know, I've been reading lots of accounts from students in lots of different training programs who are all like, yes, and this happened to me. It's like, you know, my body is round. Even when I was thinner, it was round, right? I was, it was curvy, right? And so the way my tailbone looks in relationship to someone else's tailbone might be different, right? Um, my booty might just be rounder. And I don't know why you got to keep harping on me. <laughs> um, I think that that's something about the Black experience that um, 
is part of this whole sort of notion that there's one way for people to be, one way that they're supposed to be. Um, so yeah, I think the way we talk, the way we congregate, the way we take care of each other, you know, I think that all of that is under, if not devalued in the academy. Yeah, you know, and, and I mean, unless there are, you know, unless there's the good fortune of having faculty present or faculty on the roster who just bring with them whatever the, whatever the source of richness is. But you have, but that theater education has to be precisely that education. If you are in a college or university environment uh, and that you cannot be forging a conservatory in an educational environment because a conservatory takes young people and just train, you know, indoctrinates them into like a particular school of thought, a particular person or personality who had a style of teaching, acting, and takes them all down that road. But if that particular style of acting was itself entrenched in, immersed in whiteness, white culture, white experience, which traces back to Eurocentric uh, aesthetics and values, then, um, then that's, then what you're doing is you're trying to, you're going to have students who are going to try to contort themselves into becoming that thing. And they're never going to be that. So they're never going to make the mark. So there's always going to be a, a gap, this, a, this, this terrible aporia between where students who are being told this is the, this is the benchmark. And this is me though. I'm me. I'm trying to contort my black self into doing some, some ideal of something that's, that's, you know, that's a, that is a, dis, that is to disservice students because um, academic departments are not conservatories. They are academic departments. They're supposed to be training students to, to, to um, experiment with and try out theater technique, whether it's acting technique or painting sets or designing sets or doing lights or, you know, all that kind of well-rounded exposure to theater to see, is this what I want to do? Is this the path I'm on? while at the same time teaching them how to converse across disciplines, to be able to sit down with people who are studying history or anthropology or geography or other fields, and to be able to have a conversation about what the plays they're doing are, what and how and in what ways the plays that they're doing are in conversation with those subjects. Playwrights are piqued by things. Playwrights are responding to a set of conditions in the world. They're responding to a time period. They're responding to not only the emotional life of characters, they're responding to a world with a set of conditions in it that are pressing down on characters for particular sets of reasons that are not just in the micro, but are trickling down from the macro. So what is that? What's the backdrop? What time period are we talking about? What are the conditions that these characters are living amidst, right? Playwrights are thinkers, but so are actors. If they're taught, if their thought processes are valued, they become head to toe thinkers who can think along with the director and along with the dramaturg and along with the playwright say, wow, you know what? But, but the thing is it's 19, 35. What was going on in the world in 1935? And why is 1935, I'm picking that out of the sky, but why is that and how is that talking to 2020? If you've got a bunch of actors that are all trying to contort, black actors and actors of color by extension, who are trying to contort themselves into some 
you know, notion of some, some notion of, uh, of a, a beat generation white aesthetic and they don't even understand even what that is or what that means because nobody's teaching them that, that, that there is a value in understanding what that is. I've got to learn about Sam Shepard in order to understand why he doesn't have to be the center of my universe, right? Um, I, I, I'm, I'm going to learn about Shakespeare to understand that I don't have to put Shakespeare on a pedestal. I can know who he is and understand what his works are and understand the time period in which he's writing and to also understand the severe and intense racism that's going on in 14th and 15th, 15th century Europe. Let's take Spain, for example. Let's take the Moors, for example. If you're, not, if you're developing a culture that doesn't teach students, acting, acting students who are also students in a university setting, that... 15th century Spain has some serious racial issues going on, or that the, the Crusades is giving way to, to all kinds of monstrous colonization all around the globe. And what does that mean to be colonized? And are these people um, Spanish-speaking people? Are they Black Spanish-speaking people? Are they white Spanish-speaking people? Like, what, what are these interrelationships around the globe about? And how do, how do those interrelations land us today? If you don't, that's what theater education is, in my view. It doesn't mean I just want to do Black work. No, it means I want to learn things that are all, that, um, I want to um, learn on a landscape where Black work is also valued as part of the conversation about theater education and is in conversation with these other plays. And then if I, as a black actor, also want to, this happened when I was at Irvine, the black graduate actors came to me and they were like, um, so we have this problem. See, we're not learning any black, like August Wilson wasn't even being explored in their MFA program. And they all are smart enough to know that when they graduate with their MFAs, and they get out into the world, it's going to be August Wilson plays that they're going to be, you know what I'm saying? It's not going to be Sam Shepard and David Mamet plays that they're going to be <laughs> auditioning for. So they're like, we have a problem. We're not being taught anything black. And yet, you know, but what we're being made to do is to contort into the value system that is entirely, not only entirely non-black, but the atmosphere is entirely anti-black. This is a problem. This is not education. This is, um, this creates fiefdoms and um, um, aesthetic biases that are, you know, that, you know, preferences that lean toward and treasure and idolize whiteness, you know? It's not well-rounded stuff and it doesn't train actors in a, in a good faith fashion. So, so anyway, I could go on further, but I mean, that's, that's, that's the pith of it, is that if, Blackness isn't even on the landscape, then the education is out of balance. It's out mm -hmm. of whack. And so there have to be educators that are brought into the situation who understand that and who can reckon with that, you know, and teach across these different racial and cultural spheres in some way. That means you have to have a faculty that is diverse um, and not just for diversity's sake, so you can raise your hand and get funding because see, we, we hired one or two people you have to have a value system at your base that says we recognize and value the import of what these people are bringing to the table so that the students who are here 
can get and can say, you know what, I have to, I'm, it's not just about acting craft and me wanting to, you know, emote all the time, but I also have to value theater history and understand why theater history is in conversation with acting craft or design craft, whatever, stagecraft. If I don't value that, if the culture of a department doesn't value that, I'm not going to learn it as a value, right, as a, as a, as a student, right? And so, so these, all of these things are what, what it will take to actually bring to the fore um, something that I would consider ethical, good faith theater education. Which acting practices or techniques can be harmful for the Black artist? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I think, I mean, I think there are a lot of things which are problematic about training for the actor of color. I mean, I think, well, okay, I think one of the tough things is when people want to hold on to um, sense memory as a, as a training site and then conflate it to, you know, factual, whatever you want to call it. So you're going to go to a sense memory place and you're going to be, yeah, I don't know, you're going to go to a moment where a, an adult figure disappointed you in your life. And maybe you, I don't know, a teacher disappointed you or a parent disappointed you or a guardian disappointed you. But the role you're supposed to play, you take that disappointment and you kill somebody because that's where the role is. Like that, that's dangerous because you can't conflate those two ideas. You can't put those two things together. So the roles and the training are, are, are doing a, a back and forth. I also think the other thing which is tough about um, training for people of color, and it's, it is culture and it's different. I think that we, we, don't, we don't acknowledge the, well, one, we don't acknowledge actual physical movement as directly in our training and physical movement in all of its guises. I mean, I think that there's some training spaces where people are aware of like Suzuki technique and there's some, some Asian um, training techniques that people are applying in different schools but in terms of movement and physical movement because i do think a lot of times african americans or pe persons of color as they're building character movement is as significant as a lot of the other biographical stuff background that you try to do and put together um so i do think that the the sense memory technique can be challenging depending on how that's cobbled together to the role that people are supposed to be holding on to the second thing that I would probably say is, that, is how movement is included in the, space, in the space of the training is also significant. And then, you know, the, the, the other thing that I, that I think is really kind of interesting is how, um, yeah, I just think how we don't acknowledge that those techniques, am I making a generalization? So, you know, most American acting teaching techniques emerge from the Moscow art theater of the beginning of the 20th century. And that is a particular like cultural space in which, you know, it, subsequently when you replicate it, it does come out of a particular, you know, cultural space. So when you, when do you get to the method or Meisner or however you build it down, it, it comes out of, there's, there's no ancillary or corollary for that. And there should be, and there could be, um, and so I think we, we never act as if even the biomechanics of Mayerhold, as, as was taught, is, um, you know, I mean, although this is, this is an extreme intellectual space. So the biomechanics of Mayerhold are, are positions in which, physical positions in which you learn that translate 
meaning to the audience in a series of ways. I mean, it's training and it's all this stuff. In the same way that yoga holds a series of positions that are culturally connected in a different way. One might argue that, I don't know, you could use voguing as a training tool and then those positions, positions inside a voguing routine would translate information to an audience. You could do the same thing. My only point is in different cultural understood spaces, in different cultural understood spaces, you could have the same engagement with the body to translation of information. But the fact that we hold on to the Russian and we don't hold on to, I don't even know the, the, the actual source of voguing other than uptown Manhattan in the eighties. Like I, I, you know, I don't know if it's Afro Latin or, you know, I don't know where the combination of it comes from. It's, it's fascinating. It's great to watch. It'd be great to participate in. But my only point is that could be part of a training series if we wanted to think about it. But, um, I do think if one, you know, when I'm asked, I, th I think that the things that I get back to always sense memory, not being connected to authenticity directly. And that role connection is tough movement, how movement is taught. Um, and, 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 you know, and then a the third thing, which is, you know, a challenging thing is, is the notion that what is the text to a person culturally. So what I mean by this is most of the training comes out of the text connection. Um, is the text, um, the, the God, is, it, is the text a blueprint or is the text a recipe? Is the text something that we must adhere to or is the text a recipe? And if it is a recipe wherein I can control and remake my gumbo as I choose to, then, you know, what is the latitude for the person of color inside, you know, fill in the blank project? So that's another one. Like, what, you know, how do we ascend the text? Because I think that that's another piece of, of actor training, which can be problematic. And then, of course, you know, there's a bunch of other things that, you know, what do we say? We passively ignore. Um, we passively ignore. Um, give a great example. So, Carolina, we just did a hiring of a, of a lighting director, of a lighting teacher at, at UCLA. And every time they came into my office for the final you know, series of questions. I asked them, how do you light a black person and a white person on stage? Like, how do you do it? Like, how do you do it? And I was really glad with our search for one reason. All three of the finalists said, I don't wanna say the right answer, but they said what I wanted to hear. They said, you have to make a choice. If you have, and this has to do with actor training, but it also has to do with the manifestation of this thing on stage. If you have a really dark person on stage and a really white person on stage and you're lighting them, the lighting director or the lighting person has to make a choice as to who you're going to accentuate. And if one of those candidates said to me, if they said, oh, you know, we just make everybody look the same, then I'm like, well, you're not a good lighting teacher because you have to acknowledge that you or someone has to make a choice. And that choice is, you know, <laughs> is part of the continuing problem, that the choice has been to cede to the lighter, whiter person more times than not, you know what I mean? And, but, but the fact that, and, you know, when you talk to good people who teach lighting or good lighting designers, you know, they put it back on the fact that the eye takes in information in a certain way and lightness is one thing and darkness is something else and blah, blah, blah. But, but, but the bottom line is that you gotta make a choice. And I was like, yeah, you do have to make a choice. And then, of course, you know, the choice they make is, is, is one of those things. But, 
But I do think that, the, the, you know, those three things would be my three biggest things for actor training. And then, of course, you know, just to be conscious. If, if I even want to say this, um, my, ex, my ex-wife has this, had this great moment. <laughs> She's a former performer, and uh, they wanted her to do The Crucible. And she was the only uh, person of color in her graduate school or, you know, and the professor said, oh, well, we have our tituba. And she said, no, you don't. No, you don't. And they're like, oh, no, it's a great role. She's like, no, I don't want to do that. If I can't read for Mary, I don't want, you know, I'm not just going to be tituba. And uh, <laughs> it was one of those moments where I was like, oh, yeah, I can see how that works. Because they're like, oh, you're the only black girl in the class. So you can be the witch in Crucible. Tituba is not a witch, but Tituba is whatever. Um, but yeah, it's one of those things. To be, to be conscious is another thing. Because you, you get damaged to your psyche all the time. You get told as an actor, you know, things that you should like, and your whole body and being are telling you you shouldn't like them. Do you know what I mean? Like, you know, I'm going to go back to the Othello thing. When I was acting, my agent, I said to my agent, I don't want to do Othello. And she said, are you crazy? I said, no, I don't want to do it. And she said, but no, you know, all these people have done it. I said, I can't be, I can't be a black dude with only white people in the room and I'm not going to trust this woman. That's not, I'm not, I can't do it. And then she was trying to convince me that I should. And I was like, no, I'm not doing it. <laughs> so I think, I think the thing is you have to be conscious. You have to say to yourself, I don't want to do that. I can't put my head around it. That has nothing to do with me and my experience. Like you need to, I hate to say it, stand up and stand firm about some stuff because you're not playing let's pretend you're trying to find the truth. And if you can't find the truth, and that's the other thing, you know, a lot of times actors of color get backed into this corner where they're like, oh, I guess I have to be the, the ghetto girl snapping my neck. I'm like, no, you don't. You just say no. You just say no. You say absolutely not. I'm not doing that. And then they're like, oh, they're not going to call me for the job. It's like, I mean, the, the, thing, the thing that happens is that kind of psychic damage that you do yourself every time you, you move your artistic thing down, it, it kills you. And it also makes you pick up bad habits. That's how come some actors drink too much. I mean, you, you, don't, you, you can't be playing these roles all the time. You got you to stand up. So that's, that's another thing about training. You got to stand up. And it's scary. It is scary. And it will, you know, I don't know. I, I've, I've killed my career 10 times and I keep going. So it's all right. And what are some ways that white educators of theater can dismantle their own subconscious racist tendencies in the classroom or in season selection? Well, I think the first step is to figure out what, what whiteness is. Um, that's been my recommendation for some time. <laughs> uh, I think right after the uh, 2016 election, actually, I, I looked at the reaction of a lot of white friends and colleagues and their devastation. And they're like, I don't understand. And I was like, oh, yeah. I've spent my whole life needing to study and understand white people, but this is new for you. You actually don't know a lot about white people. <laughs> and, and so I started in my conversations with students actually being very explicit and very direct. Okay, white people, you need to understand this is how this works, right? 
white people respect papers and and forms and the written word. So if you're working in community and there's a disagreement, the person of color knows that's what you value and that will be their first move is to pull out the piece of paper and make sure it says the right thing. So I was working with theater managers and I'm like, look, this is gonna fall to you. This is gonna be your job because it's called business, right? Um, if you can't honor a verbal promise, right that verbal promises are really important to a lot of cultures right but we live in a world where it's all about the written word so i i think that um when it comes to white folks many of whom are just figuring out that they're white like figuring out what that could actually mean they just because so many people think of themselves as people right that's one of the advantages of white supremacy is white people get to be individuals while the rest of us are members of a group and so really having white folks do the work do the reading um there's so many great things already out there and you know if you like podcasts, I have a great podcast. If you like TED Talks, there are great TED Talks. Like whatever is your entry point, and there are many, uh, pick one and start to think about how white supremacy and white supremacist thinking is built into every aspect of your life. And then think about how you might have students who don't actually function from that premise, but have learned to negotiate it and have learned to navigate it. Just because I'm good at working with your system doesn't mean I like it, right? Just because I'm good at doing it doesn't mean it's authentic to who I am and who I wanna be. And so I think that when you come to things like season selection, I think that there are so many white folks who are in charge of these decisions who are working from that old fashioned diversity model. That old fashioned, I mean, it's really just one step away from integration, right? Let's put something more than just white people on this stage. Um, and they don't have a very wide spectrum of black experiences to draw from that, that seem authentic to them. I think that's partly why what you were saying is true that we the america has seen so many public lynchings has seen you know emmett till's open casket now we're seeing all the viral videos we saw the rodney king video and it was like oh yes there it is on video see no that's not what they saw they saw something very different um but you know white folks are so used to controlling the pipeline so used to controlling and green lighting what gets made um that they don't recognize something like flying west by pearl clegg about exodusters and this group of black women who are making their way on their own land in kansas in the late 1800s right that they didn't they don't even know that happened right look at the tulsa massacre right it's when hbo produces a, a tv show all of a sudden people know about it and all of a sudden all of a sudden oklahoma is now teaching it in their curriculum right the theater needs to do the same thing with our curriculum right we need to look at our own history we need to look at who we are as people we look need to look at who we want to be as people i mean even if you just read the constitution and you just said, I want America to be that, that would be the next hundred years worth of work. Like you wouldn't even have to do anything. 
<laughs> you didn't even have to like just to get there is going to take us some time. So I think that, you know, for white folks to consider what their culture is, how it works and how it interacts with other people's cultures, then they can start to see more, you know, they can see um, Latinx stories. They can see multiple Latin cultures, maybe, right? Brazil is not Mexico. <laughs> right? Yeah. They're not the same, right? The Philippines are not China. Not the same, right? Like there so I think that a lot of times things get lumped into the big racial categories. Oh, this is an Asian play. It's like, yeah, but what Asian experience, what Asian American experience does this speak to? If any. And I think that, you know, having teachers understand that inclusion is important but understanding is required if you're really going to change you can't you can't save the people till you serve the people right and you you can't serve someone you don't know how do you know what they need so i i think that for me as an educator it is not my job to fill an empty vessel that walks into my classroom. My job is to look at that whole person, impart whatever skills I can help them develop, but really find out what's the best in themselves. And we in the theater use stories to help us do that. So when it comes to the content used in classes, when it comes to the um, the shows on our stages, which are very often in the educational world, classes. Um, how do we use those stories to help those students really find the best in themselves, really dig into their culture, really understand history? Um, if, we're, if that's what we're really about, how about we do that? <laughs> that's a great, great, great question. Um, you know, because I think the thing with white theater educators is they are fighting tradition too. And so they're, they're not aware of, well, they're not aware of their own history, which is, you know, a problem. I mean, I, 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 when I even talk about black plays that are written in the 20th century, part of the reason why American theater education stops at um, Eugene O'Neill is because before Eugene O'Neill, we have to embrace our theater tradition. So our theater tradition in America is blackface minstrelsy before O'Neill, you know? And I think that a lot of times theater educators don't want to pony up to the, 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 the simple fact that they've, they've got to fight their tradition. I, I, I do this exercise with my, with my class where I say, you know, who is Jim Crow? And then people are like, I don't know, who is Jim Crow? Is that a law? It's like, no, Jim Crow is a performance. When people talk about the Jim Crow South, Jim Crow was a song like, you know, the Macarena, but it was a performance, right? And the performance changed society in so many real ways, you know? Um, when we look at, when, when, when theater educators are trying to, to deal with some stuff, they gotta deal with, oh, I'll give you another one, American folk music. Um, uh, have theater educators say, just go to anything and go get the original lyrics for Oh Susanna and have them just start singing Oh Susanna. The second verse will shock them. The fifth verse will shock them. These really racist verses inside this really cute song that people sang at day camps. 
not even to talk about all of those early plays and uh, musicals that really were used to denigrate black people. Um, you know, the first um, great film, NYU used to show it as a first great film, was the film of a play. The first great American film is The Birth of a Nation. And it grew from a novel, which was also a play called The Klansman. And The Klansman was a really popular play, popular. And uh, the hero of the play is the Ku Klux Klan. Birth of a Nation, the, the hero is, or, you know, they're Klansmen. And that's how, you know, you know I was gonna say, white educators need to embrace the fact that they are not aware of their history. They're not even aware of like, you know, when you have a white theater educator, you don't even have to go to Othello. You say, are there any women of color in the, in the canon of Shakespeare? Because Shakespeare is somebody they're gonna hold up. They're like, well, this, the nurse could be a person of color. No, no, written as a person of color. There are none. Men, the more Aaron in Titus Andronicus, who might be argued the devil, and then Othello. And so you're like, and this is the, the height of the work that you want me to do. So when I come to you and I say, I don't know, I, I want to do something by um, uh, Eula Mae Spence or um, Victor Sejour, as I said, or somebody else. And it, it, well, oh my gosh, William Wells Brown. I want to do something from that. And they're like, well, why would I do that? Or why would I let you do that? It's like, well, why should I do this other thing? Which in so many ways is done either to, um, I mean, Shakespeare is complex because Shakespeare is, you know, you know, Shakespeare's space is out of this British space, which comes to America through, a, through an interesting like transference of revolution or non-revolution. So people can argue where it situates itself. And the African Grove Theater um, in New York and all, on all black theater in the 1820s did a lot of Shakespeare and they did Richard III a lot, which I still have never figured out why this black troupe did Richard III all the time. It must say something about Richard III, um, which I haven't fully, you know, come to grips with. But, but, but I think what I'd ask all the educators to do is to like figure out the history, their history or American history um, and try to find the work. I mean, it's interesting when you have, professors who are, you know, 70 years old. And the first black playwright that they'll mention to you is August Wilson. August Wilson was yesterday. August Wilson, I mean, August Wilson, the first play I ever did in New York was done when August Wilson was doing Fences in 1987. I mean, 1986, 1987. So I'm sitting there like, that was, yes, that was 10 seconds ago. You're telling me you don't know any other black playwrights? You don't know any Latino playwrights other than like, Right now, they probably will say Jose Rivera, whose Marisol is a great play, but they don't even know, I mean, of Nilo Cruz, so they'll know two, right? But they're not even gonna mention Kiera Hudes, they're not gonna mention, like, Migdalia Cruz, Milka Sanchez Scott, these are people who are like, just the 70s, like there's so many people who have been working. It's like, oh, name me four Native American playwrights. Aside from the fact that I work with Hane Gigama at UCLA, I mean, Bill Yellowrobe is one of the great writers who, I don't know, maybe people aren't paying attention to these people. But my, my only point is that, that there are so many people that they don't know. So I guess my, my thing to them would be just like, I don't know, name me, name me five, 10 writers of color before the 1950s. I, I bet they can't, I bet they can't. I mean, and, and like I say, 
if they can't, if you want to think about it, and I mean, this is what I've said to my colleagues too. If you want to think about it, if you can't name me anybody from the 1950s, put that in a political space, right? Put that in a political perspective. So if you're teaching history or politics and you don't know any president before, I mean, before Eisenhower, like, can you be a professor of political science? Do you know what I'm saying? Like, if you don't, if the presidents you name are like Kennedy, Bush, you know, I mean, like, you're not a, you're not a professor. And if you can't name anyone, that's telling me something. That's telling me something about what your connection is to history. And this has nothing to do with the style of work. This has nothing to do with greater aesthetic questions. These are just like practical questions. And if the argument is that they've never been on Broadway, well, that doesn't make any sense because there's so many writers, you know, who, who have been canonical who haven't been on Broadway. There's only a handful of, they're not teaching Neil Simon in most schools. He's on Broadway, I don't know, 50 times. Most people aren't teaching Neil Simon. Samuel Beckett wasn't on Broadway until after he died, and that was only at Lincoln Center. I mean, it's, it's kind of telling that they don't know the things that they should know. So um, that's, I mean, that would be my thing to break down. And, I, and, and then if you wanted to make it ro more robust, you can ask them the same thing about great actors or great directors. Name me, name me great actors before the 1950s. And if they, they don't know who Charles Gilpin is, they're not going to know uh, anybody who is, yeah, they're not going to know anybody, you know, which is, which is sad, which is sad. You know, they're not going to know any of the actresses. They're not going to know anyone. So that would be what I would do. And then if they can't do that, I would say, you know, they need to have remedial work done. And then they could come back. <laughs> work done. The, the thing which is important about theater makers is that they do keep trying to get to the truth. We do have to keep trying to get to the truth. But I also think, and I say this about 21st century theater makers, a lot of people were doing this work. So you don't have to reinvent the wheel. A lot of this stuff has been done. The thing that we have to do is we have to respect our past and know that it's, it's as grand as anybody else, as anybody else's, you know what I mean? So I think that that's, that's one of the tough things. It's as, it's as grand as, as anyone else's tradition. And I do think that in terms of the practice of theater, even if I think about um, the ways in which people get taught, the, the, the thing which is so compelling to me is that they will jump through hoops to make something, you know, fit into this Euro model. And then if something is slightly outside of their... Um, wheelhouse so to speak they're like they have to just dismiss it particularly if it's something that is done by people of color but i but I, you know the, you know i'm gonna let you go but i was gonna say the other thing about the the tradition that they don't want to admit or we don't want to admit theater is the way in which we get taught to be ourselves and we have been taught you know the jim crow thing is 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 real we have been taught to dehumanize black people. Like anti-blackness is an American stance. Like we have been taught that from the three-fifths compromise going forward. So we have to unteach that, but that's really hard because that's an abusive relationship that we have, that we have, as a nation, we have to admit that that's an abusive relationship that we've never gotten away from. We have not shaken that completely. And, um, and I think when people are talking about the trauma that exists in black bodies, there's trauma in you know, all of our bodies in different ways. And so I think that that, 
it's it's part of our job to to start to heal all that trauma and the the, the healing starts by learning and knowing so that's the that's my big thing it's healing and knowing yeah dismantling i can't i mean that can be our that can be at the root of our object i mean our, our of our objectives that can be our that can be it the dismantling is the thing so i'm not trying to throw that out or dismiss it in any way i want i want that to be clear but i think that that it becomes a kind of super objective there's a there's a there's an acting term for you that can become a super objective that can be at the heart that can be at the heart of every meditation we have is the the dismantling as a as an as an end game but we can't on the daily worry about dismantling because this whole thing does not mean to be dismantled which means it is a massive force to be reckoned with and so we have to do the work that we do because it has to be done and that means articulating and understanding that theater education means from top to bottom it's vertically integrated and it is cross-disciplinary it is rigorous it involves the mind and the body and all of the resonators and all of the um uh senses and everything that's available to us yes that's all very true um but on terms that are very different than the syllabi that are being rolled out to students now those students have have are within their rights and in seizing this moment to say so why are we why what is the objective of this syllabus and to and and in the response from the professors to really make an assessment about and where is where is the world that is not europe in this syllabus and how do we access it and how do we how do we include the not just the experiences again not the experience but the world how do we include the world in this syllabus never mind experiences experiences are very localized but the world view the world um realities how is that reflected in this syllabus they have to be made to answer for that in this in this moment i think Thank you to Dr. J. Austin Williams, Chris Anthony, and Dominic Taylor for agreeing to discuss this imperatively relevant discussion. It's been an honor to learn from some of the greatest minds in the business. As many of you might have heard, the summer festival you love is coming live to your living room. In this newly modified version of the Griffith Park Free Shakespeare Festival, ISC is kicking off with weekly events beginning August 8th, culminating in an all-new hybrid production of Romeo and Juliet, premiering Labor Day weekend. This brand-new production of Romeo and Juliet is directed and adapted by Melissa Chalsma. It features Nikhil Pai as Romeo, Bukola Ogunmola as Juliet, and many of your favorite ISC ensemble members. This hybrid stage production will use movie-making, animation, social media, and our own ISC stage in Atwater Village. Front and center of this new production is the Shakespearean acting of the ISC ensemble members. All events are online, free, and open to everyone. When you register your attendance to each event, you'll receive information about how to access the programming online, special community building add-ons, and interactive elements. You can find out more information at iscla.org under the Summer Festival tab. 
That's all for today. Continue to aid in the fight for black lives by following our social media and frequently checking our justice page on our website. Don't forget to rate and review. And keep socially distant, not emotionally. The music you're hearing in this podcast is called Past Sadness by Kevin MacLeod. You can find this and other amazing sounds at incompetech.com. <laughs>